0: I'm Teresa Weezar, your host of One in Ten. On today's episode, A Pathway to Healing, I talked to Patrick Anderson, CEO of RuralCAP, the Rural Community Action Program serving many rural communities in Alaska. Now, when we think about Alaska, we think of Denali, pictures we've seen, movies we've watched, the wonderful wildlife, and people still living on the cusp of the frontier. But of course, what films don't always show And what books don't always cover is the incredible challenges of this environment as well. The high rates of trauma, the high rates of addiction, the high rates of suicide, and the high rates of child abuse. So how do you help families identify the root causes of trauma and truly heal? How do you apply two-generation approaches so that as kids and caregivers heal, the cycle of generational abuse is broken? And what happens when you accept the brutal truth of historical and personal trauma and cultivate an enduring hope for the future. At its heart, this conversation is about the nexus of a brutal truth and enduring hope. Take a listen. How did you come to this work? How did you come to the work of community development?
1: I am an attorney by training and I've been practicing law in the state of Alaska. But in 2000, I had a sister pass away. She uh, was young, about 45, and it really bothered me. At the time, I thought that perhaps the reason for a lot of the issues that led to her premature death were the absence of our father. I had reconciled with him when I was 16. Uh, I had actually gone to... Um, Kind of beat the crap out of him for abandoning us and ended up spending the summer living with him. And I had time to reestablish a relationship with him, but my sisters never did. Uh, That was followed the next year by his death in 2001. So at that point, I wanted to make a career change. I thought about what it was that I might do. And what I came up with uh, is to advocate for responsible fatherhood and reintegration of fathers into their homes. And what I ended up doing was applying for a position as executive director of one of our regional tribal nonprofits, the same one that my dad would have belonged to had he remained living in his hometown. Mm. So I was hired there, spent uh, nine years. From there, I went to another two health organizations. And while I was in what I thought was going to be my retirement job, now it's hard to describe Teresa without pictures. But I had a a two-and-a-half-bedroom home sitting on a bluff overlooking the Straits of Juan de Fuca uh, on the Olympic Peninsula in Washington State. So in the morning, I could come out and I might see a couple of great big... uh, Ships, container ships moving on, but more often than not, there was no traffic. I could see Vancouver Island 10 miles into the background. And I left that when I was asked if I would be interested in coming back to Alaska and taking over the leadership of Rural Cap. I resisted, uh, eventually had a dispute with my existing leadership at the job I was at and said, okay, uh, I know the president of this organization. They wanted me because I knew how to run organizations and they were going to give me the ability to run it. So I said, okay. So here I am uh, running a community action agency. It's been a huge learning curve. but. Uh, After three years, I finally am in a place where I understand the mission. I understand the policies behind it. And I'm having a heck of a good time with it.
0: (laughs) Well, good. Since you came out of retirement, board, I think that's excellent. I'm just wondering, both for many of our listeners, they've never been to Alaska. And even if they had, they were on, you know, a cruise ship and the inside passage, they were not um, in rural Alaska or working there. When you think about the challenges that may be experienced everywhere, but also maybe unique to Alaska, particularly rural Alaska, can you just paint a picture for our listeners of what it is like working with kids and families and in communities, which may be off-road systems and may have other challenges?
1: Wow. Um, you didn't want to start off with an easy question, did you?
0: <laughs> no, no.
1: We have 229 federally recognized tribes in Alaska, most of them villages, one of them a regional tribe. And we operate through nonprofit organizations that get resolutions of support from all of these tribes. I just got off of uh, another call where I was explaining my attempts to visit the community where we have just established a sexual assault and domestic violence center, Mm. a three- Village consortium of about 5,000 people. I've tried twice and I haven't made it. Um, I fly from Anchorage to Bethel, which is not a long flight and it's on a jet. So it takes about an hour, 20 minutes or so. But on most days, you can make it into Bethel, but then you transfer sometimes to a twin-engined jet or or prop plane, sometimes to a single-engine. So they fly a lot of 206s, 207s out there, which are Cessnas, uh, five, six, seven-seaters, depending on the cargo. And you wait for the weather. To cooperate. We're coming into springtime. As soon as we go through what we call breakup, you can't land for two or three days, sometimes two or three weeks, because the runways are predominantly gravel. Uh, When you get into the community, there are no hotels. You have to find a place to stay, uh, which typically we have Head Starts, so sometimes we're able to bring sleeping bags and to get one of the kids' cots for nap time and sleep in the Head Start. There may be as few as uh, 55 people in a village. There may be as many as 1,200, uh, 1,300 But the travel to get there will consume at least one, two, three days. You don't quickly turn around and come back on a day trip. You have to wait till the next day. So you can be stuck out there for two, three, four days if you make it into the village and a weather system comes in because the same troubles I had going in are the troubles the people who are already there have coming out. So those are the realities of where I'm at. Just traveling from Anchorage, uh, which is where I work. To get to Washington, D.C., which is where you work, uh, usually has me catching a red eye, meaning I leave here at 2 or 3 a.m. Uh, then I get on a flight from Seattle to D.C. There's a nonstop that leaves about 8 a.m., gets me into a D.C. at a, uh, probably 4 or 5, and then I have to adjust to the time zone changes. So we go through a lot to just be able to work with our villages. Um, some people might say, well, why don't you just uh, do video? Uh, A lot of our places don't have broadband and it is very expensive. I listen constantly to stories about families who have uh, uh, Internet service. They have a certain amount. If they overcome it, all of a sudden they have a bill of four or five hundred dollars for the overages Mm -hmm. for that month. So it's a very uh, difficult environment to uh, work in.
0: Well, you know, you bring up a good point about disparities in broadband access, which is something that's really been brought to home to us throughout the pandemic. You know, I think Alaska is probably the most extreme example of that, but there are even places in the lower 48 where that's true. And so while we never really thought we'd be working on that issue, because we're typically doing policy work on... Um, other child abuse issues, we found ourselves, you know, really advocating with Congress around issues of broadband access, because it just really complicated the ability for multidisciplinary teams to respond adequately um, because of that. And I know that this is not just a pandemic issue in lots of places. It's an ongoing issue of inequity. I'm just wondering, too, you know, we've been talking about kind of environmental challenges, things like distance and geography and the rurality of it and kind of frontier environments, all of those things. But there are other things um, that can pose challenges too. I mean, I know that you know even better than I do that in Alaska, we see, you know, high rates of domestic violence and high rates of child abuse and high rates of substance abuse and all of those things. Can you talk a little bit about why there are these increased rates within your state relative to the population? Like, what is driving that, do you believe?
1: I have spent the last 13 years deeply immersed into the results of the adverse childhood experience study. Mm -hmm. I ran three tribal health centers and the spread of the information about childhood acquired trauma has been slow for a couple of reasons. First of all, people aren't open to new thoughts and ideas. Second of all, it touches a lot of taboo areas. Mm. So the Adverse Childhood Experience Study looked at first eight and then 10 common experiences that children have in childhood. When I read the results of the study through a Centers for Disease Control publication in 2008 my jaws just dropped open. Uh, I was shocked uh, because according to the 10 child experiences, I grew up with six of them. Mm. And one of the outcomes important for a healthcare center was the existence of an almost 10 year shorter lifespan for those who had six plus. Well, as I dug more and more into the Adverse Childhood Experience study in 2012, the American Academy of Pediatrics came out with a classification system that had been developed by Dr. Jack Shonkoff at the uh, Harvard Center for the Developing Child. They categorized the outcomes of, uh, of stress into three base rates, normal, tolerable, and toxic. And I realized that with six, I uh, was in the world of toxic and I was interested in knowing more. So in about 2011-12, a number of my colleagues were uh, advocating for inclusion of questions about adverse childhood experiences in our behavioral risk factor surveillance system, uh, affectionately called BRFSS. We got that in in 2013. The answers came back and were analyzed by a very capable analyst by the name of Pat Sidmore, and it just absolutely blew me away. In Alaska, Alaska Natives have double the rates of toxic stress that the rest of the population do. And so that likely came from the huge impact of historical trauma morphing into intergenerational trauma. Uh, I'm not surprised by that result. Uh, uh, Oftentimes, if someone trusts me, they will reveal the number of ACEs that they have. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you the number of people, particularly Alaska Native women, who have all 10. Uh, And what that does, according to the study, there is a uh, graded dose response related impact for every one of the adverse childhood experience levels. Uh, I've spent a lot of time in suicide prevention, and for someone who has seven plus adverse childhood experiences, 35% of their cohort have attempted suicide versus two and a half percent of the cohort with zero. And the population attributable risk of that is above 70%, meaning that uh, except for the adverse childhood experiences, over 70% of this population would not have attempted suicide. So we have a much higher rate. The graded dose-related response means that we have higher rates of alcoholism, higher rates of addiction, higher rates of suicide, uh, higher rates of promiscuity, sexually transmitted diseases, all things that I learned in the healthcare system that we needed to address. And it seemed like the best and simplest way to address was to try and figure out a way to overcome the impact of childhood-acquired trauma, this toxic stress as referred to by the American Academy of Pediatrics. I think that's the root cause of much of what we see here
0: for people who may not know some of the history of Alaska, particularly as it relates to Alaska Natives, there have been many things to cause this historical trauma, including really a grim period in our history in which families were separated, kids were sent to boarding schools, and other things. Can you just talk a little bit about this sort of destruction of family life? Because I think in some ways we think about family separation as something new, right? It's in the news right now as it relates to things going on in the border. But really, this is a part, this is a dark part of our history in the U.S., um, that that was really official government policy, you know, that really has affected lots of indigenous people.
1: It was. Um, in 1867, during the Treaty of Session, uh, Alaska had very few non-natives living here. When the Organic Act was enacted to provide government authority, a few more started to come Uh, more of a military presence. We've always had a pretty significant military presence. But during the gold rushes, a lot more people came around the turn of of the 1800s to 1900s. And with the fishing industry, with timber, uh, other minerals and resources, people started coming to Alaska. When we ended up with certain kinds of government Uh, systems put in place, they carried over the prejudices uh, of the United States. And so Alaska Natives were not looked upon as equals. And in fact, we were not eligible to be citizens until I think 1925. In 1925, in order to become a citizen, you had to produce affidavits from five white people Uh, in your community who would attest that you have given up your savage ways. So they actually had certificates. One of the ways that the United States believed they could take this savagery out of native people and American Indians was to send them to boarding schools. So there were boarding schools that were started under Dr. Sheldon Jackson, uh, who was the first Alaska commissioner of education during territorial days. Uh, Our biggest one was Mount Edgecombe, but there are a lot of smaller ones, many put together by religious institutions. So uh, St. Mary's uh, on the uh, Yukon River was one. There was one in Kenny Lake. My mother went to one in uh, Skagway, uh, the Pius X mission. She was not quite five years old when uh, grandpa sent her. She spent nine months there. It was quite a trip to get to these places. So mom would uh, take a flight down to Juno. She would stay overnight until all of the other kids had assembled at a Catholic uh, hospital. And then they would be sent by uh, what they called it a shore boat up to Skagway. And she did tell me stories of what occurred there. Uh, they were treated very harshly. There was no uh, ability to speak native languages, although mother didn't speak. I do have colleagues who went to Wrangell Institute and were actually beaten for speaking their languages. Uh, sexual abuse occurred. My old law firm represented any number of individuals who had been sexually abused in the 50s and 60s by clergy uh, in their communities. So this historical racism led to a lot of behaviors. Uh, Alaska Natives were thought of as drunks and alcoholics they were thought of somewhat subhuman and it has an impact Uh, the the impact has been this transition of uh, of uh, families into people who have many of these negative behaviors my own grandmother uh, my mother's mother passed away at about age 34 in juno on south franklin street uh, when i finally returned to Alaska, my mother wanted to see where she was buried and we didn't know. I was able to get the uh, death certificate, uh, found out that she had died in Juneau. Her death certificate said she died because of alcoholism. Well, she actually died because she had pneumonia, both lungs and had no medical treatment. Uh, She did drink a lot, but she had been horrendously abused during her lifetime. Uh, And that passed down to my mother, which passed down to me and my sisters. That goes back to the one sister who passed away. Uh, I've had a second one pass away again well before their time because of this trauma. American Indians, Alaska Natives have a huge burden of intergenerational trauma, uh, and we've not had the programs to try and help us overcome it.
0: One of the things I was thinking about when you were talking, Patrick, is both, f- for one thing, how shocking it is that there are people in living memory who had this experience. I think when people sometimes think about these governmental policies of the past, they think about them as something that happened in the 1800s. They are not really thinking about something that's within our living memory. But the other thing I was thinking of is that we use terms like historical trauma, but but in many ways, because it does play out to the present day it's really current trauma you know it it is yes caused um in some ways by history but it has this life that extends down the generations and you know you've really described that in your own family i'm just wondering you know sometimes when we hear these things we think only of the the sort of difficulties of that but also i think one thing that we should also think about is how incredibly resilient people have been that they're still here, given the sort of burden you've been talking about. What do you think has really contributed um, to that resiliency? Because you just see that despite these terrible things that have happened to individuals, that they're still really trying to help their kids and lead lives in which their kids are thriving. So what is that resiliency about, do you think?
1: Well, um, first, Teresa, I don't believe in the traditional concepts of resilience. I am blessed with opportunities that many people don't have. Uh, I came out of a housing project in Seattle to an Ivy League school. I was 17 years old. I came out of that Ivy League school to an elite law school. I I was 21 years old and and I took the Alaska bar exam in 1978 uh, at the age of 24. I had no conceptions uh, of what that all meant until much later. Um, I, I was blessed, but I experienced myriad issues and problems related to the traumas that I grew up with. And one of the big ones was in my, I think, um, if I remember correctly, it was my uh, uh, freshman year uh, towards the end of of the year. I had a severe bout of depression Hmm. at the time. um, You didn't talk about depression. And yet the adverse childhood experience study revealed that about 22 percent on average of individuals in this country undergo clinically diagnosable depression, 27% women, about 16% men. It is a common occurrence. But when you look at descriptions of resilience, I have a different construct um, and and I've taught it a couple of times already. First of all, we believe uh, and talk about only the negative outcomes of the fear response. Dr. Joseph Ledoux at New York University has done extensive research on the fear response. It's not something you're aware of growing up. Why? Because you have the amygdala and hippocampus that are intercepting uh, and at the same time teaching you the levels of fear that you need to have in order to survive in your environment. So if you're living in Syria, uh, where every day is a threat to you, you need a very high threat response. You need to react very quickly. The reaction time bypasses the prefrontal cortex. And when it does that, you're not thinking about it. It also shifts all available oxygen and glucose to your response systems. So neurobiologically speaking, you get a great big chemical dump. And that chemical dump spurs you into action. And you only have three. You either fight, you run, or you freeze. Uh, Fight, flight, freeze is the 3F response. But running is no longer really an option. So if you... uh, fight um, you're dissipating those chemicals that's why people in countries where they actually have to fight are dissipating but they're also at a very high threat alert level and so these chemicals remain in their body all of the time what happened to me is that i had this very high uh, fear response that's what six adverse i could have had seven because i just don't know if my mother underwent depression likelihood that she did is very high So six or seven really doesn't matter, it's still toxic stress. But what your body does is it tries to return to homeostasis. Uh, When you alert, um, all of these chemicals come in, you wanna dissipate all those chemicals, breathe, feel safe, and you come back to the state of readiness for the next alert. When that's happening all the time, these chemicals never leave your body. So if you're looking at homeostasis as a feedback loop, there is a huge gap that exist before you can return to homeostasis. The natural mechanisms don't do that. Natural mechanisms are breathing, well, find a safe spot, uh, breathing, and then begin to soothe and calm. Um, if you have chemicals left over, oftentimes you'll see a tremoring response. That is just your body uh, shaking to dissipate the chemicals. So the construct that I came to believe in is not one of resilience. Your resilience is saying that, oh, Patrick Anderson graduated from Princeton and Michigan. He's a lawyer. He's in great shape. He's really resilient. But they don't look at the depression. They don't look at the three marriages. They don't look at all of the other issues that I faced. And so what I realized is that we're only looking at the negatives. But what about the neutral and the positive stimuli? that contribute to a reduction of the fear response or this return to homeostasis. Let me give you a couple of examples. My mother loved bingo. Uh, She would go on a Friday night. Um, If she won, she would stay for late night bingo. If she had extra money, she would play pull tabs. After I read the Adverse Childhood Experience study and it had settled into me, I began to realize, oh my, she would tell me the three or four or five calls that had to be made in order for her to bingo this was important to her Mm. and what happened is is that you don't have to win the money to get the chemical stimuli from your brain that helps counter some of this stuff Uh, so she would get excited these would be brain chemicals that made her feel good But Vincent Felitti, who I've uh, met and talked to a number of times, the co-PI of the adverse childhood experience that he wrote about and said in a number of presentations I've Mm -hmm. seen, he said, it is hard to get enough of something that almost works. So my Mm -hmm. mother smoked, my mother drank, she was married five times the bingo gave her something that she needed. I consider that a neutral because she didn't spend more than she could, but it made her feel good for a while, but it didn't last. The smoking, the same thing. It gave her chemicals from the smoke that made her feel good. So Dr. Felitti uh, talks about how an addict may actually be attempting to heal themselves using the best mechanisms that they have available, I just extend that construct to include uh, neutral and positive effects. So what were the possible positive effects that impacted me? Uh, I operated on praise. Uh, praise made me feel good. Uh, and when you get praise, that doesn't last very long. So you try to figure out ways to get more of it. Not intentionally. Your brain is just trying to seek out those chemicals. So in high school i played five different sports why because sports ended in a season and you needed something else to uh, fill that i sang in three different uh, organizations i I was a good singer uh, and i got a lot of praise for it but if you only have uh, one concert in band every uh, semester that's not enough praise so i joined others and there are i believe are other elements that work but they don't heal The actual stress response, you're still reacting as frequently as anyone else, you still have the prospect for that shorter life frames. So that's the reason I don't believe in the traditional construct of resilience, I believe that it's much more expanded and we don't really heal from the childhood acquired trauma until we follow a different progression towards healing.
0: Well, let's talk about that different progression for a moment, because when I was looking on the website for Rural Cat in preparation for this interview, one of the things I noticed that you all talk about a lot is well-being, the concept of well-being, programs around well-being. Can you talk a little bit about what that means to you? Uh,
1: Absolutely. In 2004, I was introduced to the management concept known as lean thinking, lean management or the Toyota production system. It helped me deal with the issue of nonprofits who did not function uh, as businesses uh, in a very gentle way. The two principal th- philosophies behind the Toyota production system are respect for people and continuous improvement. Beyond that, there are lots of tools, one of which I learned uh, is the concept of root cause analysis. So as I look through to this whole arena of toxic stress instead of thinking, oh, I've heard about resilience, so that might be the answer for me. I said, well, what is it trying to heal? What is the root cause that we're trying to heal? Okay. Childhood acquired trauma. What does that consist of? Well, if you're exposed to up to 10 different things, you have these behavioral outcomes. Well, why do you end up with these behavioral outcomes? That led me to the fear response. That's the deepest root cause analysis that I can get to. So once you have that fear response, what the research I looked at indicated is that the amygdala increases in size and the hippocampus decreases in size. Okay, so what do we need to do in order to reverse that, to decrease the amygdala and increase the hippocampus? So I began looking at the research of uh, psychologists like Dr. Martin Seligman and positive psychology, uh, Angela Duckworth and Grit, who was a student of Dr. Seligman's. And I began to think, okay, what we really want to do is to minimize the fear response. We want you to learn not to react. Well, the first thing I thought was, if you need to know what the fear, why you have this fear response or that you even have one. You just think you like to drink or smoke. Well, no, if we can show that you have a linkage between your adverse childhood experiences and your behaviors, some of which are positive, some of which are neutral, some of which are negative, then you have an opportunity to accept that you can do something to try to reduce that fear response. Now, Dr. Seligman came up with his theory of positive psychology, and he used an ABCDE example. The first thing he said is that you need to know what your activators are, uh, meaning that when you do something, why do you do it? Root cause analysis. It all made sense to me. The second thing he talked about was what was the behavior that elicited? Okay, so I had a bad day at work. I go home and I slam down a six pack. Well, that's the behavior. What are the consequences? Well, I wake up with a headache the next morning, uh, uh, or I have a few more drinks, or I head out to a bar, and you know there are a lot of bad things that can happen. I get into a car or whatever. So you need to understand the consequences. And then what he talked about was disputation and energization. So if you know those that sequencing, then you can dispute what it is that you do because you understand the activator. Oh, I feel that activator coming on, so. I know what the behavior is. I know what the consequence is. So I'm going to dispute it. And then you need to have a way of disputing it. So what I came up with is a six-step healing hypothesis, the first of which is knowledge. I can't change you. You have to change yourself. But you have to understand why it is that you activate and accept that you activate and accept that these behaviors come out of that. Second thing is real simple, breathing. Breathing is something that we all do naturally, but once you uh, emerge past early childhood, you forget how to deep belly breathe, soft belly breathe, uh, how to meditatively yoga-type breathing. Your body operates on oxygen. Your brain operates on oxygen. In particular, if you're highly stressed, that oxygen is not fueling your brain the way that uh, it does when you deep breathe. So learning how to breathe deeply, Uh, is also a way to begin soothing and calming. Nutrition. Dr. Joseph Hibbelin is a man that I have gotten to know. He was a research scientist at the National Institutes of Health. American Indians and Alaska Natives used to eat a lot of fish. Today, if you want to eat fish and as an Alaska Native, you have to wait for the state to open up the season. Then you have to have a boat and a net and gas to get out. 50, 60, 80, 100 miles, and then you might not catch very much, so you don't have a winter supply of fish. We used to eat fish all the time, very high omega-3s. As a country, our diet in omega-3s has declined substantially. We used to have basically a fat ratio of one omega-3s to one omega-6s and nines, and most people now it's seven, eight, or nine it has an impact on you. It increases your violent response. Uh, It decreases your intellectual capabilities. There are just a lot of responses that are caused by poor nutrition, and that's just one of them. So, in terms of healing, I like people to think about what it is that causes their problems and issues. If you have pain problems and issues, magnesium supplementation is probably going to help you a lot. If you're drinking, a lot. What Dr. Hibbolin uh, found is that with binge drinkers in a clinical trial he conducted, if you took supplementation of two grams of uh, omega-3s every day for 90 days, these binge drinkers reduced their binge drinking by over 80%. And at the same time, their anger went down. The founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, Bill W., uh, was advised to take three grams of niacin daily. So he took three grams, morning, uh, afternoon, and nighttime. He said it was the first relief he ever had from the overwhelming depression that drove him to drink. He spent the rest of his life trying to convince AA to encourage supplementation. So that's the third step, knowledge, breathing, uh, supplementation. And then I hinted at the other one, tremoring, Uh, Dr. David Berselli did some research on the vagal nerve and discovered that tremoring was the body's response to dissipating this fear response. And he came up with a series of exercises that uh, allow you to do that. Uh, There is another psychiatrist at Georgetown, Dr. James Gordon, who uses a concept he calls shaking and dancing, uh, along with soft belly breathing that he teaches. I think shaking and dancing is an intermediate step to trauma release. Trauma release is an involuntary tremoring. Shaking and dancing is voluntary, but I believe it accomplishes pretty much the same thing. And then we get into the heart of healing. Once you have all of that in place, it is to recognize and calm when you see uh, your activator. And there are a variety of tools that can do that. Emotional freedom technique or tapping is one. Uh, Meditation and mindfulness are two. Dialectical behavioral therapy. uh, Interestingly enough about DBT is that it was formulated predominantly upon mindfulness and meditative techniques, but because it was formulated in the 60s and 70s when uh, meditation was thought of as hippie-ish new age, um, it was hidden. There is um, EMDR, and I exercise, uh, all of this dissipates. Uh, Dr. Felitti likes Ericksonian hypnosis, which the research shows works with almost everybody except for uh, emergency medical professionals. So I think that progression can help you address the high toxic stress and actually soothe and calm you. I calm very easily today. I've been practicing meditation for about 10 years. I have done tapping Uh, when I got past the immediate part of my excitations, which frequently showed up in anger, but occasionally showed up in the flight response. I, I quit a couple of jobs. I did not like the boss. I quit. I ran. It was not worth the confrontation. So that's basically what I believe. There is not no resilience. It doesn't actually help you heal. But this restoration to health hypothesis, I believe, can. The sixth step, if you're counting, some of us need professional help, meaning medications. There is some tremendous work being done in use of LSD. There is tremendous work being done in other substances that are aboriginal in nature that can help those who organically have problems and issues that can't be resolved by the restoration hypothesis that help. And I always say that if you feel that you need that professional higher level uh, help, go seek it. Definitely.
0: When you think about well being, you've talked about several discrete components of it. And I want to go back to sort of native foodways for a moment because it seems to me that Alaska really is, um, at least along its coastline, really experiencing some of the effects of climate change. And how have you seen that impact? you know, sort of the ability to have the kind of nutrition that you're really talking about. Has it become more difficult because of that? Or is that really not as much of a factor as other things, perhaps?
1: For climate change, not yet. Some of the bigger impacts have to do with excess harvest. So one of the food stocks for salmon and uh, other marine mammals are herring. Herring spawns used to be extremely prolific in Alaska. Right now, there are only two of any significance, uh, and those are not really available to Alaska Natives much uh, anymore. So one of our traditional foods is herring eggs. In the next uh, two to three weeks, the herring will spawn in Sitka. And in the past, I could expect to get a couple of uh, wetlock boxes full that I would distribute to elders here in uh, Anchorage, as would other folk, just not available anymore. The commercial value is uh, harvested and sent to Japan. Uh, They like herring eggs. They use it in some of their cooking uh, over there. Uh, Salmon, pretty much the same thing. Uh, Seasons are closed in uh, uh, Alaska to subsistence harvest. Halibut, I remember as a boy seeing halibut that were three, four, 500 pounds. Now you see 20, 40, 60s. The big ones have, have gone uh, so there's been a lot of uh, influence, but we're starting to see the influence of climate change uh, starting to occur with movement of salmon further and further north. The runs that used to occur down around um, the Bering Sea and are now moving up towards Norton Sound, and some of those are moving up towards Kotzebue Sound. They're seeing tuna coming into Southeast Alaska on occasion now. So we're beginning to see the impacts of climate change, but it's more now the commercial uh, uses and the expense of trying to get to the places where they're allowed to harvest. So Dr. Hibblin believes that Alaska natives uh, and Washington, any coastal natives that relied on salmon, probably had a huge surplus of omega-3s. And the dissipation of that has really had impacts on health and on cognitive abilities.
0: You've been talking about healing from childhood trauma and the effects of it really in this very holistic way. And I'm wondering how you believe that culture or cultural practices influence that healing.
1: We refer to what we call our breakthrough initiative for as whole community healing. My belief is, is that a cohort of eight people, plus or minus two, is an ideal size to begin healing together. And then the networks of people uh, helps the spread of the actual successes. So when you begin to talk about what works for you, other people, if they're connected to you, uh, tend to create a bias around that and adopt it. If it's the right thing, then that's great. If it's the wrong thing, too bad. So a lot of people were raised in a culture of alcohol uh, and their immediate response without understanding its relationship to their stress response is that uh, I'm going out Friday and Saturday night. I'm going to find me a date. I'm going to go do fun things. And then uh, Sunday when they're waking up from their hangover and from their unintentional hookup and any other issues that happened, uh, maybe a DUI, th- then it's it's um, it just adds uh, to the trauma. But if you have someone who you're with who is not immersed in that uh, culture of drinking, then you have a different opportunity or chance as a group to support each other on your own healing journey uh, and to learn from others who are in, in similar cohorts or from the entire community. Uh, the pathway that works for them. I always believe that we can make things better. So as we look at a whole community, the connection I believe to culture that is seized upon within Indian country is that I want my language, I want my songs, I want my dance, I want my sweats, those kinds of things. I have no objection to that, but a lot of native communities have worked away from those and are advocating for a restoration. What I believe is the culture is instead a culture of caring, compassion, a culture of being able to listen and support when people hit adversity uh, and, and that it's genuine. I see on Facebook all of these and I think they're heartfelt. Well, I'm so sorry that happened to you, but we don't have the connectedness anymore for people to realize that, gosh, this person really meant a lot to you. And the loss means that you are hurting very deeply. I am here for you. I can listen. Uh, And not not to necessarily offer all of this advice. Well, you need to go get into a sweat lodge or you need to go out dancing or the other. Um, I think culture is uh, about how we interact with people and everything that comes along with it. I'm Perfectly fine with, you know, native dances, good shaking and dancing. It helps to dissipate. Uh, when you go into a sweat lodge, it's it's really good for cleansing. You're getting rid of a lot of bad chemicals in your body. So, I just don't think it is the actual focus. And I think what happens when you are in a cultural program is here's the positive and the neutral part: is that you are a part of group saying that, oh, well, Teresa, it's wonderful that you're learning your native language. Hey, everybody, come over here and listen to Teresa introduce herself and her name. It's a part of that praise. Uh, that I don't think has been integrated into the response. You know, I I almost flunked out of sixth grade. I wasn't getting praise, but as soon as I started getting praise, boom, I responded. Graduated uh, what they called Torch Society out of Seattle. And I think that's why Princeton took a look at me, is that I was an honor student for all my three years in high school. I am always reluctant to talk about this because I believe in culture, but I don't think it's the same cultural response that others think about. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I don't think it's the pathway To healing. Uh, I think it's a pathway to providing greater praise to help with some of the toxic stress. But to get to true healing, I think the uh, hypothesis is the best answer I can come up with.
0: Well, I think it's interesting you're pointing to the biological basis and influence of so much of this as the root thing that has to get addressed, um, however, that's going to happen. I wonder for a moment, because again, in looking at Um, some of rule caps work, you seem to be doing a lot of work with youth, so many programs, really. And I'm just wondering, you know, how do you think about that? Do you do you view it as prevention work? Do you view it as community strengthening work? Does it matter how you view it as long as it's happening to bring along the next generation?
1: The Community Action Network uh, is working in a two generation response uh, area. I'm teasingly referred to that as coming to the party a little bit late because the Native American communities work on a seventh generation principle. And I think we still pale in comparison to the Hawaiians. My friend Lillikala Kalamalieva can recite a hundred generations of her genealogy. And so seventh generation uh, is wonderful. What we do today impacts that generation. and The two-gen approach is a, a good modification of that. We can't really prevent in the children until we heal the parents. Uh, and we can't make it a part of uh, who we are until parents emerge out of childhood without any trauma they're then not likely to adopt the behaviors that impact their children. And so uh, as as I look at working with children, I know that we need to address their family issues. The 2 general approach, though, just talks about the social determinants of health. And I'm talking about how do we heal a parent, bring them to a place of peace and contentment with their a lot in existence uh, in life. Uh, I was guided on that by the work that Dr. John Kabat-Zinn did at Massachusetts General Hospital for 30 years, where they used mindfulness so effectively that in an eight-week program, they were able to bring people who were terminal with disease or had chronic disease to a place of peace and contentment. I said, that's a powerful example. If we can bring parents to a place of peace and contentment, Not to be always objecting to their circumstances and stations in life and looking for ways to comfort themselves, but to be happy uh, and then put together a plan or a strategy on how they can advance the welfare and well-being of their own family as they work on their own. So I know it's a very different construct from what most people have. Uh, I used to be frustrated about it early in my career, but I can tell you that when I learned how to be mindful, when I learned how to calm, I also learned about cognitive biases, about habits, about resistance of people to things that are new. And I said, okay, I just need to be talking about this to people, let them to accept it whether they want to or not. And that applies the same thing with culture. I have no problems with people in their culture. There are so many of them that if you can figure out how to integrate that into your healing Wonderful. I want to know about it so we can practice on it. So to go back to your question, we might be able to train youth how to heal. uh, And many youth, by the time we encounter them in our programs, have already been exposed to four or five or six adverse experiences. So we have to work with them on healing as well. But at the same time, our engagement with them gives us this opportunity for them to not fall behind in development of the skills that they need to be successful in society.
0: Well, you know, I think that one of the things that you focused on, which I think is so true, is that if we're not paying attention to the well-being of the caregivers, then certainly kids are going to just continue to be exposed to toxic stress with all the outcomes that that means. When you look to the future for kids and the communities in which you guys work in Alaska. How do you feel about that? Do you feel hopeful? Do you feel worried? Do you feel concerned? Do you feel all of that or something else entirely? I'm just you know, I I think our listeners are probably curious about what the future holds for those communities.
1: Our breakthrough initiative is based on a concept called the Stockdale Paradox. Dr. Jim Collins wrote a number of books uh, with the title Good to Great, based on research he did on businesses. But for one of the books, he interviewed James Stockdale. He was Admiral Stockdale at the time he was interviewed. But before he was Captain Stockdale, he was a prisoner of war at the Hanoi Hilton in Vietnam. And it was an interesting conversation. Collins wanted to know why Stockdale survived. And he said, because I accepted the brutal truth. Well, what was the brutal truth? Well, I was at the Hanoi Hilton. I'm a prisoner of war. I think he ended up spending eight years there. He said, I'm not going to get out of here. Uh, I need to accept what is. But he added another part to it. When Admiral Stockdale was asked about those who didn't make it, he said, oh, those were the optimists. What do you mean? Well, the people who believe that, well, I heard we're going to get out by Thanksgiving. And then when Thanksgiving came and they didn't get out, I heard we're going home by Christmas. These were the people who were optimistic about positive outcomes, didn't accept the brutal facts. And when Admiral Stockdale talked about why it is that he was able to do that, he said, when I accepted the brutal facts, I was able to position my existence to live with that. But I had an enduring hope that I believed that I would get out. And that's what kept me alive. The optimists died. Those who had enduring hope survived. So all I can really do is not project that we have this great future in front of us. I can continue to have conversations like I'm having with you with people and hope that others hear it and accept that we have a brutal truth. And you work in that arena as I do. We have children who are sexually assaulted. That is horrific. me. But I unfortunately know too many women in Alaska who were. Uh, That's the brutal truth. The enduring hope is that we can eliminate it. And the management discipline I spoke about is one of continuous improvement. If I find something that works, I'm going to do more of it. So if I'm able to preside over programs that can help children through the neutral and positive aspects of my healing hypothesis and the resilience construct that I've come up with, Let's understand that a little bit of praise goes a long way with kids who are heavily traumatized. I have lots more that I've thought about. Carol Dweck, for example, did uh, uh, important research on achievement by children. And she said that children who were told and praised for being really smart stopped working. Instead, they no longer strove for challenge. Uh, Instead, what they did was to try to preserve their image that they were really smart. They didn't want adults to tell them that, oh, no, you're not as smart as I thought. So I think as we look at our kids, we need to figure out what it is that challenges them Until we find an opportunity to look at what it is that heals them. That's the continuous improvement I'm in. So I have this enduring eternal hope that if I can continue doing what I'm doing for the period of time that I have left in my work life, if I can convince people to gain the knowledge to start their own healing pathway and then to put into effect the standard work or practices that help them achieve that then I've done all that I can do. And then I, I hope that there are, are enough people who can take that knowledge and advance it into the future.
0: Enduring hope, I really love that. So thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. And I just appreciate all the work you're doing to strengthen families and the many communities that you reach.
1: Well, and I thank you for the invitation. Um, I listened to one of your previous podcasts and was so enamored with the topic that I contacted the subject of that interview. And that's how we build networks. We find people who have something to add to what we already know. And what you've done has given me that opportunity, Teresa, and I appreciate it so much. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to One in Ten. If you like this episode, please share it with a friend. And for more information about NCA and the work of Children's Advocacy Centers, please visit our website at www.nationalchildrensalliance.org.